All right, well, good morning. How are we doing? Good? Come on, let's, let's try again. Good morning. There we are. Everybody awake? We ready? If you've got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be uh, going through a fair bit of text this morning, the end of 1, the beginning of 2. Uh, so strap in because we're going to move quickly. Uh, a few things before we jump in, though. Let me just say welcome. I, I got a chance to meet a number of folks this morning who just joined us within the last five weeks. First, LifePoint family, we'll just welcome our, our new folks here who are with us this morning. We're grateful. Guests that you're here. Uh, guests, I'm going to throw a resource here on the screen for you. There's some QR codes in front of you. If you're new uh, today or if you've been here for a little bit but you haven't yet connected with us, we would love for you to take a next step. Uh, go to Starting Point, our class for new folks, part of our sort of launch pathway to help you orient yourself here at LifePoint. But the first step is just to utilize that QR code or type in lpguest.com. Uh, the message notes will be there for you this morning. A uh, bunch of helpful info, our calendar, your next steps, and also uh, an opportunity just to connect with us. There's a digital card there. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, letting us know that you were here this morning, we would love and appreciate uh, that. Secondly, Dalton mentioned, so one of the gentlemen leading this morning is helping lead. He will help lead worship at our Worthington campus. So our Worthington campus launches September 10th. Uh, And so at the bottom of your, yeah, please, absolutely. We're excited about that. At the bottom of your app notes today, there's a link uh, to uh, Dan and Courtney's video. So Dan is our teaching pastor at our Worthington campus. So you can uh, click that. If that's not there for some reason or it didn't upload correctly, please let us know. We'll get that to you. But I believe it's there at the bottom of your app notes. Opportunity to just to meet Dan and Courtney, hear a little bit from them and their uh, vision, why they're here and why they're leading at Worthington. But great opportunity over the next few weeks if you've got friends or family. And let me say this clearly. We're not going to Worthington just to reshuffle the deck right? As far as Christians are concerned, moving, we're going there to to build the kingdom of God. So specifically, if you have friends or family who don't have a church home, and they would be interested maybe in in starting this new work and being a part of what God is doing there, please let them know uh, and uh, let us help connect folks over the next few weeks as we head uh, towards the September 10th launch of Worthington. Finally, um, students, uh, parents, there's a parent meeting for students right after uh, service, or I think during our, uh, is it Braden, where are you? Is it afterwards? 12.15. There we go. 12.15, right? 12.15 in the meeting room for parents of middle school and high school students. And so make sure you're there. And then students tonight, met some students this morning. Uh, tonight, here this evening, uh, 6 o'clock. And so middle school and high school, our groups launch tonight. So please be there. Don't miss that. Uh, we would love to see you there. All right, let's jump in. We're in the uh, second week of this series we're calling New. We're going through the book of Revelation together. Last week, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. We did a fair bit of prep and background work to understand what is the book of Revelation. Why does it get so confusing sometimes? If you uh, can't find that message, so on the messages tab of our website, if you're on the Delaware campus, just hit messages. All of our messages are there. We record them Sunday morning. They're up by two o'clock on Sundays, all right? So you can watch that and catch up. But we basically said, look, Revelation is three things. It's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and it's a letter. Right? And apocalypse, the reason we said that's important, apocalyptic literature uses lots of symbols. So there's dragons and beasts, right? And, uh, and all these different symbols. Numbers. Numbers are really important throughout the book of Revelation. We talked about what some of those numbers represent. But we said it's not a secret code to crack, 
right? It, it's, apoc- it's symbolic, helping understand things that are real and things that are true, but using vivid imagery to capture our imagination and help us understand. It's prophecy, uh, and both in the foretelling and foretelling aspects of prophecy. Prophecy is both foretelling, which is saying things that are true in ways that cut through the nonsense and help us understand things that are going on right here and right now. It's also foretelling. There are things in the book of Revelation that are about the future, about the return of Christ, and so, and its fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's talking about how Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And finally, it's a letter, right? It's, and this is so important, okay? It's a letter. Jesus speaking to John, and then John writes it down and gives it to churches, to real congregations, to real Christians, helping them and calling them to faithfulness and to hope in light of the imminent return of Jesus, all right? So something I'll pretty much say every week, Revelation's more about present hope than it is a future calendar, all right? Revelation is more about present hope than it is about a future calendar. In in essence, it's Jesus saying to his people, guys, I know things are hard, but I win. And I'm coming back and I'm going to make all things new. So don't lose heart and don't lose hope. It's not a secret code to crack, to calculate the day of Jesus' return. It's a call to hope and patient endurance in light of Jesus' return. And we said last week, it comforts us knowing Jesus is coming back, knowing how all this ends, that he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. That is a great comfort to you and me when life is hard. And it also confronts us. Now you say, how does it confront us? Well, it confronts us. The whole book of Revelation and much of the Bible confronts us with how are we going to live our lives and specifically who are we going to live our lives for? It confronts us with the question, what will be written on your gravestone? That you lived for the things of this world, for pleasure, for comfort, for wealth, the things that feel good in the moment but ultimately pass away and have no lasting value? Or did you live your life for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the one whose kingdom lasts forever? It confronts us with that question. Now, if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to cover the rest of 1 and then get into 2, one of the letters, the seven letters that Jesus sends. Revelation 1, 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Patient endurance is a key phrase in Revelation, right? And John's saying, guys, I'm your partner in this. Christians, I know it's hard, but I'm your partner in this, right? In the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We said last week, just by way of background, the apostle John, we believe this is the apostle John, who's writing from the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there, okay? Patmos was where the Roman Empire sent criminals and enemies of the state. You're like, what did John do? What John did, he just told you, on account of the testimony of Jesus. He stayed firm and faithful to Jesus when, in a particular time, when persecution was heavy. Emperor Domitian at the time, this is the 8090s, told everyone in the Roman Empire, you need to go and you need to worship me as Lord and God. You need to throw some incense on the altar, go into one of the uh, temples to the emperor, and you need to worship me as one of the gods. And for Roman citizens who are polytheists, this is not a big deal. They have lots of gods. Okay, let's add the emperor to one. It's not new for them. But for Christians, this is a huge deal because one of the uh, emphases of the faith is Jesus is Lord. He and he alone is Lord and God 
We have one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're not worshiping the emperor. We'll honor him. We'll obey him as long as what he tells us to do doesn't directly contradict our faith. And so for that, John is exiled to Patmos. And he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So chapters two and three contain seven letters that are written really from Jesus through John to seven churches across what is today Turkey, right? What then was called Asia or Asia Minor, all right? And so here's the point I want to make. Seven, so the number seven, we said this last week, equals completeness, right? Especially in a spiritual sense. So you're like, why seven? There's lots more churches in Turkey than seven. The reason there's seven, these are real churches and, and John is going to, Jesus through John is going to say things to them individually. We're going to look at one of them this morning. And they're unique. The letters are unique. They're not just um, the same exact message to all of them. They're unique to those congregations. And at the same time, because you could walk away from that and go, okay, there's nothing to be said. This is just a unique congregation in the first century. The reason it's seven is because these seven also represent the church all time. All churches all time. And so everything that's written to them is also instructive for us. Are they real people? Yes. Do they have real situations? Yes. Is the message contextualized to them? Yes. But is it also relevant for you and me? Absolutely. Everything that's said in those letters is for us as well. And so look at verse 12. John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and he sees Jesus. And we're going to get to read this incredible description of what Jesus looks like. And I said last week, Revelation shows us Jesus as he is right now. Revelation shows us Jesus glorified. So this is, this is important. You say, why is that important? So in the Gospels, you get to see a lot of, you see Jesus mostly during his time on earth. You see Jesus humbled. You see Jesus incarnated. You see Jesus as a baby. You see Jesus crucified. You see Jesus resurrected. You see Jesus feeding people. You see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But in Revelation, you see Jesus as he is right now. Ascended into heaven, given the glory he had with the Father before the world began. You get to see Jesus as he is right now. And you say, why is that important? Because I think sometimes in our culture, right, there's a, there's a scene in Talladega Nights. I hate that movie, to be honest. But there's a, there's a scene around the table that illustrates the point well where the whole family gets in an argument about how they like to think of Jesus, right? I like to think of Jesus as a baby. I like to think of Jesus as a ninja conquering evil. I like to think of Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. And, and the, it's, it's ridiculous, but it does capture sometimes the essence of our culture. And that is, it's about me. It's the way I like to think of Jesus. Just let me be uh, gentle but loving and, and forthright. It doesn't matter so much how you and I like to think about Jesus. What matters is how Jesus talks about himself. That's what matters. And so as we think about Jesus, is it wrong to think of Jesus as a baby? Like, I love nativity Jesus. No, that's great. He came as a baby. Isn't that amazing? Is it wrong to think of Jesus on the cross? No, what he did on the cross is eminently important for you and me. But we need to also have room in our theology and the way we like to think of Jesus for Jesus as he is right now, like this. We're going to read it here in verse 12. Look at verse 12 through 17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, 
And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, which John tells us that represents the churches, right? And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We'll come back to the importance of Jesus being in the middle of his churches, in the midst. But I do want to know, one like a son of man is a direct reference back to Daniel 7, where Daniel, the prophet, gets this vision and he calls him, he gets a vision of God around the throne room and he says the ancient of days. And the description he's going to give of Jesus here is much like the description Daniel gives of the ancient of days. And Daniel says, I saw the ancient of days sitting on the throne. And then he says, man, one like a son of man came to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days gave to the son of man an everlasting kingdom. So what John is doing here, what he's seeing here is bringing it all together to say Jesus is Lord and God. And he goes on, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Everything about Jesus' description has meaning here. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand... He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right, Jesus in a long robe. The high priest wore a long robe. This is Jesus. What did the high priest do? He represents the people to God. He goes in and makes atonement, makes up for their sin. Jesus, the Gospels tell, Hebrews tells us, the New Testament tells us, Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who goes and represents God to us and us to God and his work. The sash being across him, that's a sash of victory. The fact that his, his work is finished. There's no more left. Nothing more can be done to pay for your sin more than what Jesus already did. So you can stop beating yourself up already and just accept that Jesus was beaten for you. And you can walk in freedom today. No more guilt, no more shame, and no more fear because Jesus is the high priest whose work is finished. He had white hair. It represents agelessness and wisdom. And listen, you read different commentaries. Some of them disagree on what exactly all this represents. It probably has multiple meanings in some ways, but these seem to be the most common. Eyes like fire. Jesus is not only pure, but he has a purifying effect on all who come into contact with him. His eyes see right through your facade and mine. The images we try to project to God and to other people, our profiles, right? Jesus sees right through that. When Jesus looks at you, one author said, Jesus doesn't so much look at us as he looks into us. And his eyes, like fire, pierce right into our souls and see what's really going on. And if you'll let him, if you'll invite him, you'll ask him, he will burn away in you lovingly. He will burn away all that is not pleasing to him and will shape you into his image. Feet like burnished bronze. You make bronze by adding copper and tin together. And when you put those two together, you get something that's very permanent, that doesn't rust at all. Copper never rusts. And so burnished bronze, you put it through a fire and man, at the end of it, it, it was one of the most, if not the, the hardest, most durable, long lasting metal in the ancient world. And so feet like burnished bronze, it's this idea that, man, it's the permanence and strength of Jesus' kingdom. It's a foundation on which we can build our lives. He's got a voice like many waters, okay? Think Niagara Falls. <laughs> when Jesus speaks, there's power in it. The seven stars in his hands. Uh, in some ways, those seven stars also rep represent the churches, but some commentators say the church is in a heavenly sense. Y you know, we sing the, the little song, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a little bit of a picture of this. You got Jesus holding the cosmos in his hands. He's that big. 
He's that powerful. He has that kind of authority. He's holding seven stars in his hands. The double-edged sword comes out of his mouth. The sword represents divine judgment. Jesus' words cut through all the nonsense and divide our hearts and our works and our deeds and show what is good and what's not. And then his face like the sun. <laughs> the, the, the radiance of Christ. Think about it this way. So Moses in the Old Testament... He went up on the mountain and he gets like a picture of Jesus's bril or God's brilliance, right? The glory of God. It's so incredible, like his face ends up shining just from reflecting the brilliance of God. When he comes back down from the camp, he's got to veil his face because everyone's like, we can't look at you because you've been in the glory of God. They can't handle it. And here John is standing beholding Jesus in all of his glory. This is Jesus as he is right now. This is Jesus glorified. Do you think of him that way? There is nothing wrong. Again, nothing wrong. We need to understand. Well, what does it mean that Jesus came as a baby? That this God put on flesh? What does it mean that this God went to the cross for us? Think of Jesus on the cross. Think of the empty tomb and also recognize this is Jesus as he is right now. Jesus glorified and in power. And John, you notice John really can't fully describe it. Everything in there is like this. When he looks at Jesus, he's just pulling for whatever he can. It's like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. His feet are like burnished bronze. It's like he has like eyes burning with fire. And then look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. When John sees Jesus, here's, here's a big point to notice. A number of commentators, pastors, theologians have looked through the Bible, looked at Revelation, and across the whole Bible, and noticed when people come face to face with God, please notice their response. It is not, hey, bro. It's not a casual response. When people come into contact face-to-face, -face, the, the unveiled glory of God, they don't, it's, it's not, uh, how you doing? It's not, that's neat. And it's not even joy, really. It's mostly sheer panic. This overwhelming sense of, like, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Isaiah, when he gets a vision of the throne room, he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. John sees Jesus. John, who the same guy who put his head on Jesus' chest, these guys, these guys were best friends in some ways, the disciple that Jesus loved. He sees Jesus glorified. He says, I fell over as though dead. Peter, the apostle Peter, when Jesus performed the miracle of the fish, Peter doesn't even get the unveiled glory. He just gets a glimpse of it. He gets a glimpse of the power of Jesus. Jesus who says, throw your net on that side. And he pulls in this miraculous catch. And what is Peter's response? He says, Lord, get away from me. For I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to have you in my boat. And you say, what's the point? The point is this. I, I, <clears throat> I want to ask you a question this morning. I ask you to consider a question um, have I experienced, have you, have I experienced God? Have I, in a sense, come face to face with the Lord? And here's a question that you have to ask yourself. Have you ever had a real awareness of 
of your sinfulness and your brokenness. Because that's one of the things that happens. There's, there's two parts of this. So stick with me here, right? First thing, as you come face to face with God, you don't look back at yourself and go, I'm awesome. <laughs> have you ever come, have you ever experienced God? One of the questions you need to ask yourself, if I experienced God is, have I ever had a deep awareness of my own brokenness and sinfulness before a holy God? Because that's what happens pretty much every time people come into contact with this God. Is he is overwhelming. It's like standing before the ocean. You don't go to the ocean and look out at the vastness of it and go, wow, I'm really important. <laughs> Does that make, is that how you feel? <laughs> my my uh, kids, my family and I, we went to Kosai like six months ago and we went to the planetarium. And we sat there, right, this massive screen and Tom Hanks voice everywhere. And, and so you, you get there and it starts with our earth and then it zooms out and it gets to the solar system. And eventually the earth is just this little blue dot. But you haven't even like exited the solar system yet. And then it's like, oh, by the way, our solar system is one of like a billion in our galaxy. And then it goes out to our galaxy and you're like, I, I can't even see our solar system anymore. Our sun which is huge, and then it zooms out again. It's like, by the way, there's like a hundred billion galaxy, and it just keeps going across the known universe until finally, I mean, you walk out of there, and you're like, I feel very small. I feel very insignificant in some ways. And that's a little bit, at first, what it's like when you stand in the presence of God. You, come, you don't come away going, man, I'm a, I'm a really good person. You come face to face with the God of the universe, and you say, woe is me, I'm ruined. You say, well, how is that good news? <laughs> because the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel goes on to say, that God, this Jesus, took on flesh, became a baby, humbled himself, walked on earth, and loves you and me such that he went to the cross and died for us in order to pay for our sin. And so the gospel goes on to say, hey, yeah, you, you, it tells us not only our problem, that we're broken and there's nothing we can do to heal ourselves. And as Dalton said earlier, there's sin that separates us from God. And there's nothing we can do. But it goes on to tell us the solution. There is one who has done everything needed for us to come back into right relationship with God. There's one who left his glory. There's one who left his power. There's one who left all of this and came here and suffered for you and me that we might get to share in that power, in that glory. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, this Jesus would love us like that. That's the gospel. First comes the awareness, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm not a good person that just society screwed up a little bit. No, I'm a fundamentally, I'm made in your image, but there's something fractured in here and I need healing. I need forgiveness. This Jesus bought that forgiveness at the cross with his blood. And he invites you to share in his glory. He laid his right hand on me. Just, just so you can notice the, the love that Jesus has for you and me. Right? Notice John says that he fell over as though dead. And Jesus doesn't look at John and say, you're darn right. You know, <laughs> that's what you should. It says he laid his right hand on me. Jesus reaches out and grabs hold of him and says, don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have this, don't miss this statement. I have the keys of death and Hades. 
when somebody hands you the keys to something, right? For those of us who remember young, do you remember when mom or dad handed you keys to the first car and said it's yours? Some of you are just angry. You're like, I had to buy my own car, right? I'm sorry, right? Okay, I'm sorry. But do you remember, somebody hands you the keys to something, you buy your first home, and what do you get? You get the keys. You've got authority. You own it. Jesus just said, I own death in the grave. I have authority over it. I met with a lady yesterday from our church. She's probably only got a few weeks left in this world. And she just, I have this peace. She said, I'm not afraid. We got to talk about this verse. You're not afraid because Jesus has the keys. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus has authority over death in the grave. He already beat it. And so death has lost its sting and death has lost its victory. And our final and forever hope comes from the fact that Jesus died and now lives forevermore. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. Praise God. Okay, chapter two. Part of me wants to just stop and pray now, but let's keep going. You guys want to keep going? All right, good. Three of you. Thank you. (laughs) Revelation 2, 1 through 7, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, right? This Jesus now speaks to John and says, John, I want you to write some things down to the churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him, and by the way, um, if you're like, what's the angel? Honestly, commentators, I don't think we know. We don't agree. So it's, some say it's like an actual angel. Others say it represents the spirit of the church. Others say it represents the the teaching, the lead pastor of that church. Um, I don't know. So to the church, right? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? I think all of them have merit in some ways. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, and you guys are bearing up for my name's sake. In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the trial, Jesus says, let me commend you. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What a hard statement. Necessary, but hard. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, man, I'll come to you and I'm going to take your witness. You're not going to be a church anymore. You are there to be a witness to the culture around you. You are, God has placed you, Ephesus. God has placed us, LifePoint, in Delaware, across central Ohio, to be a witness to those around us in love to preach the gospel. And Jesus says, right, if you, if you don't return to that love you had at first, if your heart just grows cold and this continues, he says, I'm going to take your lampstand unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Those are folks, we're not entirely sure what the Nicolaitans were teaching, but it seems like they were coming in with some false doctrine, probably around some areas of sexual immorality, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Reference to the end of Revelation, right, where everything is made new and we're back in the garden an even better one than we lost at the beginning. So four things, all right? If you want to write, this is in your notes. I'm going to bring them up one at a time here. But Jesus knows 
right? And this, this follows for every letter. We're not going to look at all seven letters in this series. We did that a few years back. We're going to go to Revelation 4 next week and cover 4 through 21. This, this outline here follows for all seven letters. Jesus knows, Jesus commends, Jesus confronts, and Jesus rewards, right? Promises reward. Almost all seven. There are a couple where he doesn't really confront them and a couple where he doesn't commend them. But generally speaking, right, every letter starts off with Jesus introducing himself in a way that's unique to that, the way that congregation needs to hear. Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars, he doesn't say that to the others. He says that to Ephesus. And it really, I think, flows into point number one, that Jesus knows his people. Jesus knows his people. Did you catch it said that Jesus walked among the lampstands? He's not distant from his church. He's not absent from the situation. He knows exactly what's going on in every single one of these congregations. Honestly, it's one of the astounding things. You're like, if this is just made up, like if John is just writing this and he didn't actually see it, his knowledge of these seven is extraordinary. Of history, geography, their culture, and their spiritual situation. I mean, it's insane. That's why I think, I mean, it's Jesus. It's God speaking to each one of them. Jesus knows. Morgan and I were uh, in our neighborhood park a little while ago and, and our kids were playing with some other kids and um, kind of looked around and we didn't see their parents and we were like, hey, do your parents know that you guys are here? And one of the kids kind of said back, our parents don't care what we do. And look, <clears throat> maybe that's unfair. Maybe they have great parents and that was totally unfair. But there was a bit of a sadness there that this kid's perception is my parents don't know and they don't care. And for some of us, that strikes a chord with you, right? Some of us, you're like, my parents are on the opposite side, right? They just flew over me, right? They knew everything. <laughs> some of you right now, right, teenage, you're like, they know everything, right? I need to get away from them. They know too. I get it, right? But, but for others of us, you're like, mom and dad or one of them or both of them, they weren't there. Either physically or they physically were there, but emotionally and relationally, they were absent. And so maybe it's difficult for us to understand and remember God is not an absentee God. Jesus knows. He knows when that diagnosis comes. He knows you're battling. He knows your family struggle. He knows your marriage is hurting. He knows all the bad times. He knows all the good times. He knows that you're growing. He knows that you just got married and it's wonderful. He knows you just had your first kid. He knows that you just got the promotion. He knows the good times. He knows the bad times. He knows everything in between. He knows you individually. He knows your family, your life group. He knows this church. He knows what we're doing well and what we're not. Jesus knows. And knowing that this God, whose eyes burn like fire and whose face shines like the radiance of the sun, knows us and loves us personally, should be of great comfort to us. Jesus knows. Secondly, Jesus commends. Okay? I'm going to use a phrase that Adam Purcell, our, uh, our lead pastor at LifePoint Mount Vernon, guy who discipled me, he, when teaching through Revelation, he came back to the phrase, Jesus loves us enough to commend us and to confront us. Right? Jesus loves us enough to commend us and to confront us. He starts with com commending in, in almost every letter. Okay? Jesus loves us, and you know what? Sometimes you just need an attaboy, <laughs> an girl, right? 
Everybody needs that in life. Sometimes you need someone to come around and just say, hey, I see what you're doing and you're doing a good job. And Jesus does that for Ephesus. He looks specifically at them and says, I know you're holding strong. I know against the cultural pressure to compromise, you're not doing that. You are a voice for the truth in your culture. I know that you're pressing back. I know that when people come in, even under the guise of Christianity, those who claim to be prophets and are not, he says, you guys test them. You go to the word. You know your Bibles, and you guys are holding strong. I'm proud of you, right? They, they lived in a, a city that held one of the largest temples in the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, their local sort of deity version of deity. And, and she was a, the, the female deity that had to do with sexuality in there. I mean, so like, you can imagine how that went over when Christians begin to come in, in a city that says, we worship Artemis, the great goddess, and we worship this god, and this god, and this god, and we worship the emperor. And then in come Christians saying, hey, there's only one god, name is Jesus. You can imagine how that went over. They're not super popular. And Jesus says, I see that you guys are not giving into that, and I want to commend you for that. But then Jesus confronts. And this is the one, if we're honest, we all love the Jesus commends, right? You're like, yay, out a boy, out a girl. And when it comes to Jesus confronting, he loves us enough to confront us, okay? This is the one that we struggle with. We, some of us, you like, when Jesus said, I hate that, you're like, Jesus doesn't hate anything. Jesus hates false teaching that hurts people. <laughs> Ideas are not neutral. And Jesus hates that stuff. Jesus also, in this case with Ephesus, looks at them and says, guys, you guys are champions for the truth. And you've forgotten to love. And that, I think that's a warning, right, for us, right? Let, let, me, let me come back to that in a moment. Let me just go back to the loves us enough to confront us. I think sometimes we struggle with that one because in our culture, by and large, and you can hear it in so many different ways, by and large in our culture, we take the term love and we equate that with condoning, affirming, and accepting, and applauding whatever direction you want to go. Whatever decision you want to make with your life, whatever you want to do with your wealth, whatever you want to do with your relationships, whatever you want to do with your sexuality, whatever you want to do with your gender, what, it doesn't matter. Like, you're to applaud that and to condone that and to say, I'm just here to affirm you. Now, <clears throat> there are limits to that, right? So we don't, we don't equally apply that. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to be a serial killer, <clears throat> you're not going to look back at them and go, whatever makes you happy, <laughs> all right? You would look back at them and say, hey, I don't think that's going to, that's not right. There are a few spaces in our culture where we still hold on to the idea of absolute truth, like it's absolutely wrong to go murder people. We still embrace that. But in most other spaces in our lives, we've gone to, man, there is no universal truth. There is no absolute truth. So, so it's wrong to ever confront someone. That's unloving. Jesus has a different and better definition of love than that. Jesus says, I know what's true. I know what's true for you. I know what's good for you. And Jesus loves us enough as his children to come in and say, I love you enough to confront you when you're running down a path that's going to destroy you. It's not loving to say, just keep going. I know there's a cliff there, but just keep going. 
Jesus loves us enough to come in and say, I- I'm going to confront you about this. This, you're doing really well. This, it's not good. And you need to repent. And so for specifically for, for Ephesus, it was, he says, guys, you, again, you're bastions of the truth. But somewhere along the line, you've forgotten how to love. And, and again, pastors, theologians, commentators differ a little bit on, um, well, how have they forgotten? How did, what did they forget in their first love? Do they not love God anymore? Do they not love each other anymore? Do they not love the outside world anymore? Do they not love the, the lost person? The answer is, I'm not fully sure, and I, I don't know that we should separate those things. Jesus said, right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and maybe there's an application for all of us. Some of you to here today, one of our pastors said this so well. He said, it's, we've, got, we've become sometimes people who's we're full of activity. Schedules are full, full of activity for God, but no intimacy with God. For some of us, that's what you need to hear this morning is, is you, you I, got, I go to life group and then we've got church and then I'm serving this ministry and, it, and you're like, hey, are you enjoying the fact that you're God's son or daughter? And you're like, no. And, and Jesus would say, hey, remember from where you fall and remember when it was, what it was like to just fall in love with the Lord and to know that he loves you. Repent, acknowledge that to him and then do the work you did at first. Go be with him. Maybe you need to hit pause on some of those things. Or maybe you keep doing those things, but you say, Lord, as I do those things, help me to remember why I do those things. Because you love me. Maybe it's love for each other. And you, you say, man, I'm, I'm super passionate about defending the truth. But you really don't love your brothers and sisters well. It's a call to repentance. And I think maybe the, the best warning for us is that love for the lost Guys, as our, as our culture continues to teach things that, frankly, we just flatly disagree with, and there's a lot. <laughs> we could pick from a lot of it. The pressure as to be Jesus-following believers, the pressure's probably not going to lessen. It's probably going to increase for us. And there's going to be things that you say and things that you believe and things that you do that sometimes the world's just confused by. Sometimes our culture will just flat out say, man, like, we hate that. We don't like you. We think what you're teaching is awful. And, and we need to guard ourselves. Because on the one hand is the temptation to say, I really want to be liked, so we'll just cave on truth. And Jesus has some other things to say to these churches that he's like, don't do that. But on the flip side, the danger is to say, we are going to be truth-defending, Bible-believing, right? And over time, you say, and, and we hate everyone. <laughs> and we can't get there. We as a church have to maintain a soft heart to say Jesus loved us when we were lost and broken. And he came running for us. So when we see people, when we see our culture run from Jesus, our instinct should not be to say, and we hate this, I love you. Let's run toward them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't forget to love, okay? All right? All right, last one. Jesus rewards. And I think this one's important, okay? Jesus, at the end of every letter, as he calls people to repentance, at the end of every letter, promises them something. And it's beautiful to the one who conquers. Here, right, to the one who stands firm, the one who conquers, I'm going to let you, I I will give you the right to eat from the paradise of God, right, the right uh, to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
the reference all the way back to Genesis. What we lost in Genesis 3, what we lost in Genesis 3 is restored at the end of Revelation. A new kingdom, a new garden, a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. And Jesus says, guys, stand firm, keep your eyes fixed on me. And when that day comes, you're gonna have eternal life and you're gonna be in the presence of God forever reigning with him. So don't lose heart and don't lose faith and don't lose hope. And listen, I think sometimes, especially in our cultural moment, we get this idea that there was a time that it was really easy to be a Christian. I don't think it's ever been easy or popular to be a truly Jesus-loving, Jesus-following, radical, use that term right, radical Christ follower. That's never been popular. If you are fully committed to Jesus, it doesn't matter where you live, you are gonna press up against the world's valuing of wealth and comfort and pleasure and power because you're gonna come in with the message of Jesus and say, it's not about pleasure, comfort, wealth. It's about suffering, loving others, humbling yourself. That's never popular, at least in some ways. So there's always going to be pressure for the believer. It's always going to be difficult in some ways. And the question for you and the question for me is not, is it going to be easy to follow Jesus or hard to follow Jesus? The question is, is he worth it? That's the question. Is he worth it? And I hope for you today, the answer as you see the glorified Jesus and as you hear of his love for you, that the answer is yes, he's worth it. Through cancer, he's worth it. Through pain, he's worth it. Through suffering, he's worth it. Through the difficult days, he's worth it. Through the pressure, he's worth it. Through persecution, he's worth it. Through not being liked by others, he's worth it. Through being unpopular, he's worth it. Keep your eyes fixed on him because Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, loves you and he promises you a reward that's unimaginable. Life with him right now and then joy forevermore. So church, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Let's do it together and let's follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, here in a moment we will sing holy, 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 Lord, you are holy forever. God, today we thank you that you are not only holy, but you are loving. And you are not only all powerful, but you are all good. And you humbled yourself for people like me and people like us. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day and as we sing even, they would give their life to you, repent of their sin and trust you, maybe for the first time. And God, for all of us who are here today who would claim to know you, God, will you call us to faith and to hope and to love. And when we fail to repentance, to remembering, and to redoing the things we did at first. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your matchless, wonderful, mighty and holy name we pray.